as a lifelong policy wonk to see your ideas visually is kind of a charge. Looking back, the lyrics are deeply problematic. I would say to the kids, we got to listen. This is important. Welcome to this special year-end episode of Shift Disturbers, the MPI podcast where we highlight the people, research, and ideas that change the way we think about the world. I'm your host, Ian Gormley, writer and content producer here at the Martin Prosperity Institute at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. 16 blog posts, 14 research reports, 13 op-eds, 4 books, and 1 short film. It's been quite a year for us here at MPI. Today we're taking stock and looking back at some of that research while casting our gaze forward to 2018 as well. We begin with Institute Director Jameson Stevie. Yeah, I think it was a it was a fun year and a great year for us. The things that stick out for me are um, number one, obviously, the film that we did with the Nantucket Project. I think as a lifelong policy wonk, to see your ideas visually is kind of a charge, um, and to see Roger and Zainab get sort of the attention to their work that they deserve with a pretty high end audience in Nantucket, and then to take that film on the road in London and Vienna and see the reactions of of different crowds to it was great. Also having the opportunity to put some meat on the bones. I think often we hear sort of the rhetoric of hardworking middle class and we'd have to do something for them and then period stop and no one really does anything for them. And so this was an attempt for us to put some meat on the bones of that type of argument. So that felt good. Uh, That was number one. Number two was to see, as his staff would attest, Richard Florida was really prolific especially sort of August, September, October, as he fired up not only his teaching responsibilities here at the school, but also um, everything from global issues around cities to a stop sign in his neighborhood. He was, you know, he was he was everything from a 30,000 foot academic to an activist in Toronto. So it was pretty interesting to see and, and, and fired up for a guy who's been as successful and as um, useful as he has been in that debate to still be there on that front. Third would be the partnership or work that we've done with the New York Times over this year. And we'll see where if it bears more fruit in the years ahead. But having the session we did around Syrian immigration here in Canada and the differences that happened here versus refugees um, that happened here versus in the United States. And then, you know, the rock show that was Justin Trudeau. You know, we're almost two years in and the sheen isn't off, at least in the public eye, uh, of when he shows up and we ended up with... Peter Baker, who covers the the White House for the New York Times, interviewing him on stage with Catherine Porter and some 700 plus people in and around the school, both wanting to hear what he said and wanting to get their picture taken with him. So, and then lastly, on a it's not necessarily solely on MPI, but to see Roger Martin get both the Order of Canada be chosen to speak at the Drucker House, which is a, a big deal for him. It's his management theory hero, and then end up as the number one management thinker in the world. That's a pretty good year. Um, we are a minor slice of the contribution he's made over the last 25 years of his career, but that's nothing short of remarkable. That's a nice six-month run for any one of those things would have been nice, and he got all three. So that's I'm really proud of him. I think that what I'm heartened by is that while we are a research institute focused at a university, it, it still feels like people are at the center of everything we are thinking about. So whether it's Rich trying to stop a stop sign for kids biking in their neighborhood or Roger wanting to work on good jobs because he thinks, as I think we've said in a previous podcast, people's brains are being turned off. And when you turn off people's brains, then not surprisingly, computers are better than them. So how do you turn people's brains back on? So at the heart of a lot of our work remains the hopes, aspirations and talents of actual real life people, which is not common in either think tanks or in academia, let alone one 
that's housed in academia. So I'm pretty proud of that. And that seems to be a theme that's continuing and one that I hope continues going forward. Roger would say that he usually chooses big meaty problems and then kind of whittles away at them for years, but he's starting to get down to the, to the nub of where he wants to go with his work and his research. So the year ahead, I think there'll be a lot more practical implications and advice to offer up for both democratic and capitalistic societies and what can be done to improve the outcomes on both sides of that equation for, for both. We keep wrestling with the notion of shareholders and citizens and how can those be, how can those seemingly diverse populations actually be one in the same person? I think there'll be more product coming out of here by way of writing. You know, last year was a year we joked a year of books. Adam Grant, Nilifer Merchant, Richard Florida, Roger Martin all had books come out the last year. And so hopefully this year we we focus on um, some of our, our own work from MPI to put out in the world. And then, you know, sort of bittersweet, but it'll probably be the end of our fellows program. Um, some of them might stay on as fellows writ large, but their work product is probably coming to an end. So that'll be a bit of a celebration for us because that's been a huge victory for us. You know, aside from Roger coming first, we're a pretty small institute and we had four people in the top 25 management thinkers in the world. So when they get together, it's fun, but it's also a pretty, you better, you better bring your A game because that's a pretty bright group of people and really accomplished. So those would be the, the things that I see as the highlights, hopefully for the year ahead. And then we are going to try to bring in a couple more speakers on the democratic side Whereas, you know, we learned from our David Frum experience last year that people are clamoring for not only the politics of what's happening in the U.S., but an explainer of what the hell is going on. Um, and so we're trying to bring in some diverse populations there and start rounding out what will end up being our end product in, in June of 2019. As Jameson mentioned, Richard Florida had a particularly prolific year. To put his work in focus, we spoke with senior researcher Karen King from Richard City's team. This year has been an incredibly busy and productive year for the city's team. The first major and foremost product has been Richard's new book, The New Urban Crisis, was released in April 2017. It's something that we've been working on for two years, so we're extremely excited that it has finally been released and to great success. The book really was a culmination of Richard's work for the last three years, and it really looked at kind of the changing um, importance of the city. Um, what are things that really divide the city? How have cities evolved over time in terms of segregation, how they're divided, gentrification, the, how the city has evolved over time and how that has kind of created tensions in the United States. And so I think it's a really timely piece to have come out. This really took off the reports of 2015 and 2016. We had major reports about the segregated city, um, superstar cities, and we also, the last two years looked a lot on venture capital and how really it's attracted to really superstar cities in the U.S. and globally. There are only very selected number of metros that are able to attract financial capital, the talented individuals, but what happens when these superstar cities are able to attract such a large amount of capital individuals and the division in, in wealth becomes more and more apparent. The typical um, example is, you know, what has happened in the San Francisco Bay Area in terms of when Google has come in and that great wealth divide between those who work for Google who don't, you know, driving up housing prices, the gentrification of neighborhoods, pushing out those individuals who had lived in that area for such a long time and being replaced by those very talented individuals in the high-tech sector who are making three, four, five times more than the average. We also released a service class job report in September, which really looked at the themes that have kind of been reoccurring with the city's team, looking at low-wage 
workers in the U.S. and what are some potentials for upgrading? So it's been a theme for several years now. So we're kind of continuing on on the same vein in terms of that. And I would say the third a major project um, that came out this year in 2017 was Richard's massive online course, MOOC, The City and You. So that's very exciting, the first MOOC to come out of the MPI. And we launched that in June of 2017 to quite a great success and we've just finished the alumni U of T session for the MOOC um, and with over 2,800 participants. It's five weeks looking at some really topical questions on cities. So, you know, the importance of cities, importance of cities to the economy, but as well as to individuals and their families, taking a look at topics that are really dear to the city's teams in terms of looking at segregation, issues of divides in cities, but as well as the creative city, taking a look at who's your city, where we should live, and how to make those types of decisions, but really getting deeper thought process into you know how the city revolves around yourself and how you influence the city. Switching gears, we wanted to put the spotlight on the hardworking teams that help generate and disseminate all our research. In light of the holiday season, we asked a number of staff members from both MPI and our sister think tank, the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, to share a few words about their favorite holiday songs. We begin once again with Jameson. First of all, I'm so excited that we're doing this list. I think we will probably be the only think tank in North America that puts out its favorite Christmas songs. So I'm proud of that, irrationally. Uh, What I would say is, I gave this a lot of thought, and while part of me would like to choose, uh, of course, Santa Claus is Coming to Town by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, I am going to cheat and choose two, um, because one has to be CanCon, because of my love of uh, the regulator. Um, so number one is an underrated Christmas movie. No one thinks of it as a Christmas movie, but Die Hard. Um, and one of my favorite scenes in Die Hard is the limo driver rocking out to Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. Um, so that should definitely be on the list. And my other one, my Canadian content is We Three Kings by the Bare Naked Ladies featuring Sarah McLaughlin to completely date myself. That is wheelhouse for anyone born in 1973. That is uh, that is uh, a great song, and whenever it comes on the radio, my test was would be, especially at this time of year, if that song comes on the radio. First of all, I still listen to the radio, so I'm I'm that guy. Will you st- will you change the station, or will you wherever it is in the song, make sure you listen to it to the end? And those are two songs that if they came on the radio, I would say, I would say to the kids, we gotta listen. This is important. I'm Julia Hawthorne-Thwaite. And I'm a policy analyst at the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity. Baby, It's Cold Outside by Dean Martin, although not the Dean Martin version. There's these YouTubers that made it kind of famous for me. One, Her name is Jamie D. I think it's a really cute, cute ballad for a man and a woman. It's a little more modern. more It's more playful, I think. It's like a, it's a well-crafted song. Just the the way that the man's voice and the woman's voice have to interact and the the writing of the lyrics works well, plays off of each other. I think it's unique. If you listen to the lyrics, though, of the song, it's there's a bit of a sketchy vibe to the song. Like, the girl's trying to leave the house and the guy keeps saying no. <laughs> Don't put that part in. <laughs> 
It's a story for our time. I'm Michelle Hopgood, and I am the graphic designer at the Martin Prosperity Institute. So I don't have an actual favorite Christmas song, but I have a favorite Christmas album, which is called An American Christmas. And it's a, this one of these like generic choir albums that uh, my family used to listen to, and I have memories of putting the Christmas tree up and decorating the house while listening to this album. Yeah, it's more like Christmas carols, and uh, it's like... It's a choir, but you can definitely tell that it's like a jovial sort of, not a church choir, but just people that really love singing. I think my dad randomly purchased it at probably like HMV or something back when people actually bought CDs. Uh, my name's Jacob Greenspan. I work as a policy analyst at the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity. So I'd have to say I have two. Uh, the one is um, Charlie Brown Christmas by Vince Guaraldi which is great and evokes lots of nice memories. It's just a really nice album. Um, I remember listening to it a lot when I was little and it's, uh, it's got a nice melody. It's got the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I think I watched a lot of that when I was younger. Holds up well. But from a Jewish side, I have to pick the Hanukkah song by Adam Sandler. My family's actually mixed, so, so I did celebrate until I was uh, seven. Um, and even then with the Christian side of my family, we, we did Christmas stuff and I had a tree some years. But really, it's just, it's so, culture is so generally Christmassy that it's it's hard to avoid that um, even if you wanted to which in my case I don't really want to there's actually a surprising a surprising number of options um, but no this one this one is just really good because it's a good mix of humor and just catchiness and um, yeah I guess actually there aren't that many options <laughs> I can't think of many others I'm a Patrick Adler I'm a research associate on the city's team I'm a big fan of secular inclusive holiday songs no mention of any particular holiday, simply a mention of the season, not exclusionary, although the song I've chosen is maybe exclusionary if you live in the Southern Hemisphere. So the song I've chosen is I Do Not Care For The Winter Sun, it's by Beach House. This song was on Beach House's recent collection of rarities and b-sides and i believe i came across it on a blog a couple years back and simply because it's inclusive doesn't mean it's a happy song yeah i i, I would characterize this as an unhappy song it's kind of a battle cry when you're living in a wintry place for the uh dreary uh, conditions outside so um i am reassured by the singer or I'm told by the singer that's okay to like the cold and the uh, the lack of sun and I think she she recently a few years actually I don't know how long it's been she did a version with Justin Bieber and I think it kind of you know blew up again since then so yeah it's an interesting kind of song given it's it's roots and it's evolution over the years so I think my brother was just kind of playing it and I was like oh man is that, is that Mariah Carey and I, I wasn't aware of it uh, she sang the song, and I got to listen, and uh, haven't looked back since. <laughs> so my name is Sally Young, and I'm the administrative assistant at MPI and ICP. One of my favorite holiday songs would be Santa Baby. I don't know who sang it, but one of my favorite. <laughs> I don't know, for me, holiday tunes is those that are catchy, and you could just sing along, like, even if it's the first time you heard of the song. And Santa Baby is one of those songs. I think it was at a shopping mall 
and then they're just playing. Like, it's one of those annoying songs that they keep playing over and over again, but eventually you start to like it. I'm Duran Dassault. I'm the research director at the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity. Have yourself a merry little Christmas, but the Judy Garland version. I've always liked that song, but I never knew like what it was all about until my sister basically made me watch Meet Me in St. Louis, which is where the song is from. And I think it was like really interesting to see a song that obviously it's about Christmas, but about something completely different in my mind. Um, yeah, seeing how that kind of the context of all of that. I just didn't know. I was like, what was the song really about? So to see that it was a song about moving, that was interesting. Jennifer Riel, I'm an adjunct professor and I'm the managing director of strategy and innovation at MPI. I'm sheepish and embarrassed about this, but my favorite Christmas song for a long time has been Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. And I know it's super cheesy. And looking back, the lyrics are deeply problematic, like this sort of cultural imperialism. And it's embarrassing. And uh, yet I'm still unashamed uh, because I loved it when I came out and the game of listening saying oh it's sting it's simon lebon oh my goodness it's bono um and watching the video of them goofing around in a london studio and having a great time it just makes me feel warm and fuzzy i guess it's an association with with that point in my childhood and so i hear the sort of opening bong notes and um i get warm and fuzzy i definitely was aware of the charity aspect and as harsh as i am on bob galdoff now for the the uh problematic aspects of the lyric I mean it was a pretty remarkable thing to do he's not the first to have come up with the idea of bringing together his peers to do something um, for charity I, I think that um, George Harrison had actually done done stuff in the 70s that was not dissimilar but the scale of it was even looking back still pretty amazing there are elements that are problematic about giving to charity at that scale and whether or not you're actually able to get um, support to the people who need it. That I, I haven't spent as much thinking about, but sort of the language of do they know it's Christmas, there won't be snow in Africa, that even if all the money had gone to all the right people, it's still uncomfortable. Karen King, senior researcher with Richard's Cities team. My favorite Christmas song, I would say, would be Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the original cast version from the stop-motion animation. I look really fondly of it because it was one of the first songs I learned in English. Although I was Canadian-born, I only spoke uh, Chinese at home, and they taught that in kindergarten, and they showed the, the stop-motion animation uh, in kindergarten. And I think that's like one of the first songs I've ever learned in English. So when I hear that song, I watch the show, the stop animation every year you know it just reflects back on how my life has changed and really fond memories of uh, that great time of going to school not knowing a single thing <laughs> you know not being culturally aware of Christmas and the holidays and it really just brings fond memories and a song that I would sing every year. My name is Quinn Davidson and I do many things at MPI but primarily I work with Roger Martin. My favorite holiday song is actually Under the Mistletoe by Justin Bieber. I think it's because I have a secret love for Justin Bieber that I don't tell other people. <laughs> and it just makes me smile. And I like songs that make me smile. I think it's just because he's so sweet 
at the time and it like just reminds me of you know young love when you are it's Christmas time and you're like in high school or whatever and you're just excited about I don't know I don't know I don't really know I just love it (laughs) when I was growing up my grandmother had this uh, mistletoe ornament that she sort of put up in the hallway when everyone comes in and it just was this plastic very old like it's probably like 70 years old or something and um it just reminded me a lot of it reminds me of christmas or it's very christmasy to me That does it for us for both this episode and the year. Looked at from multiple perspectives, it's been a tumultuous 365 days. But we hope that our work has helped bring some clarity and perspective to the world. Thank you to all our coworkers who participated in this episode. As always, their contributions are greatly appreciated. And a huge thank you for listening to Shift Disturbers. This episode was written and produced by myself, Ian Gormley. If you want to know more about the goings-on around the Martin Prosperity Institute, head over to martinprosperity.org or follow us on Twitter at martinprosperity. To make sure you never miss an episode of Shift Disturbers, click the subscribe button. And if you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. And don't be afraid to tell your friends about us. We'll be back with new episodes of Shift Disturbers in 2018. Until then, have a safe and happy holiday.